You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Troubling times lay ahead for the people of Judah. Israel had been captured by Assyria, and Nahum had spoken words of doom for the Assyrians in their capital city of Nineveh. A new power was rising, the Babylonians. While Nahum was in Nineveh proclaiming her doom, Zephaniah spoke the word of God to King Josiah in Judah. A spiritual revival swept through the land and God's people returned to the faith for a time. But when King Josiah died, the revival came to an end. Later, the Babylonians destroyed the Assyrians. Shortly after Nahum and Zephaniah's ministries came to an end, a new prophet, Habakkuk, was called forth to speak hope and faith to the last kings of Judah before their captivity under the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar began. All right, uh, if you would stand with me for the reading of Scripture, please, this morning. We're going to start at the very end of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. We're in the New Living Translation, the NLT. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. Maybe seated. What a beautiful way to end a book. Expression of joy and contentment in the Lord, especially in spite of such awful circumstances. As I read this uh, passage, this whole book really, over the past couple weeks, I ended, uh, I found myself focusing on these last three verses, and uh, I was challenged to take it upon myself to, to put myself in kind of Habakkuk's shoes and, and do a little test here. And so I started to ask myself some questions. Uh, even though, fill in the blank, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will have joy and contentment in the Lord. And I, I wondered how far could I take that and still have joy and, and still be able to say that statement with complete truth. So uh, here's an example, pretty, pretty easy one. Even though um, I finished watching all the good shows on Netflix, I will rejoice in the Lord. That one's pretty easy. I feel pretty good about that one. Even though Bob is my boss. I will rejoice in the Lord. I can honestly say that. I really can. I, I can rejoice, even though. Even though. That one's easy. But, all right, let's escalate it a, a little bit. Uh, hypothetically speaking, as a preacher, could I say, even though the pews are empty, I will rejoice in the Lord? Or even though uh, baptisms and, and renewals of faith are, are lacking, I will rejoice in the Lord? I, I don't know. Or maybe I, and I would guess, just given uh, what happens to me when the pews are a little lighter than normal, that, that I couldn't say that truthfully. Escalated a little further, uh, 
even though I'm, I'm persecuted by others. Not something many of us have to, have to face, but even, even though uh, our church got bombed last week and I lost loved ones, I will rejoice in the Lord. I don't know that there are many of us that, can, that could say that statement with truth, including myself. But what's even more interesting is as I processed this scripture, what I found myself realizing was that it's that even though life is pretty good, even though I have everything that I need and, and far more, I still find it hard to experience joy and contentment in this life. I look at Habakkuk, this guy whose, whose situation is, is far worse, far harder than mine is, uh, and, and in spite of those circumstances, he has joy in the Lord. And then I look at my situation, I got nothing to complain about, and in spite of how good life is, I still lack joy in the Lord. How? Why? And how do I get this joy? Where does it come from? But I can tell you this, is that even though Habakkuk started there, or I'm sorry, even though Habakkuk ended there, he didn't start there. Remember, we read the last three verses of the entire book. And the point that I'm making here is that this joy isn't something that we can just manufacture. It's not our job to just produce it. I, I think too often we just tell each other, oh, just, just be joyful. And there's this expectation uh, that like, the day after you give your, your life to Christ, that you're just now joyful forever. And that's just not the case. We, that's not how it works. But it is a destination. It is something we can experience in, in the midst of a life of suffering. And we're gonna look at Habakkuk's experience and kind of see how he comes about this joy. We're gonna learn some important things. So we're gonna go all the way back to chapter one, verse one, again in the NLT. This is the message that the prophet Habakkuk received in a vision. How long, O oh Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere, I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Must I watch all this misery? Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed and there is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous, <clears throat> so the justice has become perverted. Although Habakkuk ends his story with joy and contentment in the Lord, he begins with lamenting to God about his circumstances. He begins with this passionate expression of grief and sorrow to God, saying, God, help me. He's upset. He's dissatisfied. Things are not okay. And too often I think that we think that contentment is better than discontentment. Just inherently to, to be joyful and, and to be content is better than not to be. But I'm going to push back on that, okay, because it completely depends on the object of your contentment. What is it that, that makes you joyful? What is it that steals your joy? You realize we go back to the first verses we read at the end, and in Habakkuk he says, 
I will rejoice in the Lord. Not in these circumstances, not, not in this, this world that's jacked up in, in the injustice and my lack of provision and whatever. I will rejoice in the Lord. That's, what, that's what, what's called a holy content, holy joy. And that's a good thing. And on the flip side of things, uh, he's discontent at the beginning of the book with things that he should be discontent about. He's upset and he's angry and he's dissatisfied with things that God is upset and angry and dissatisfied about. That's what's called holy discontent. And it's a good thing. The church thrives off it. We need more of it. The first thing and the most important thing I want you to hear today in this message is that contentment and joy in the Lord cannot be experienced apart from sharing in his discontentment for the things that aren't right. It's not possible. So holy discontent. It's, it's the gift of a, of a prophet in a way. When you look at the prophets of the Old Testament, and there's prophets still today, okay? It doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean seeing into the future to be a prophet. The gift of a prophet is this incredible ability to see into the times, to accurately perceive things. God gives the prophets insight, sight into situations so that they can be his mouthpiece. And how many times in the Old Testament do you see the prophets going, uh, oh, wow, look how, how beautiful you've made your temple, and look how well you're treating each other, and look how, you know, never. He uses them to, to voice his discontent in the world so that change can happen. It's a good thing. And in this way, there's a little bit of profit in each one of us. Even just a little bit. What I mean by that is God desires for each one of us to see the world like he sees it. And at times that's to experience joy in the things that are of God, but at other times it's to experience a, a discontent with the things that are not of God, with the things that don't reflect his glory, in the places that are absent of his presence. And that's, that's what he wants all of us to experience. So my question to you is, what does he want you to see? For Habakkuk, it was injustice. It was a particular guy at a particular time in a particular place. Specific to that, to that context. But in this context, and specific to you and me, God wants each one of us individually to see things like he sees them, and to carry that burden. So what does he want you to see? Uh, I think I struggle with seeing anything sometimes. I live in this, you know, no, life is pretty good type of thing, and just I, I don't, you know, I lack joy, like I said at the beginning, but I also, uh, I really lack discontent. I'm pretty just content with the way things are a lot of times. But here's, here's an example. Uh, I've got a tree in my yard that was overgrown. And uh, I don't take very good care of my yard. The only reason I do anything is because I have neighbors. Um, and so this tree was, was growing over the sidewalk. And, you know, I would notice people who were, like, ducking the branch, you know, just to walk their dog. And it's like, okay, uh, something needs to be done about that. But I didn't do anything about it until 
until this last week, what happened is I work in my front room uh, quite a bit, and my desk that was facing the wall, I moved it so it was facing the window. And I actually, I love it. I'm looking out the window and I'm working. And uh, I started just noticing that tree all the time. I moved my desk, and, and there was this growing discontent inside of me throughout this week, so much so that on Friday, I'm in the middle of preparing this message. I'm on a roll, and I look out, and I'm just like, ah, I can't take it anymore. So I go out into my garage, I grab my hedge clippers, and I spend an hour trimming that puppy, and now it looks great. All right, but that, that's what we got to do. I, th- I think we need to move our desk somewhere else. We need to find a way to reposition ourselves so that what we're looking at is different than what we've been looking at. That's key. So, so what is it, if you moved your desk, what is it that you would see? Maybe you don't know. Maybe you know. I know what my thing is, okay? I know uh, my burden, the, kind of, the thing that God makes me see when I'm really paying attention is two things. One is my, my own lack of holiness, There's just this like, when I'm really paying attention, I become so aware of the fact that, man, I am so unholy. And I still struggle with sins that I haven't overcome and it it keeps me from God and it it aggravates me. But when I'm not paying attention, you know, it's it's just not a big deal. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, uh, kind of more of a corporate thing, is, is apathy in the church. That's the thing that God has given me eyes for. And it's probably part of the reason that I'm a preacher. It's a good thing. And I don't just mean apathy in Schweitzer. I mean apathy in the church, the larger church, right? It's, it's a lack of, of Christians who really live like Christ. It's a lack of people who are willing to sacrifice for the God who has given them everything and continues to do so. It's just a lackluster faith and a lackluster church, and, it's, and that's what I see, and it's probably why you hear me complain about it quite a bit, you know, but that's what I see when I'm paying attention. That's my thing. So what's yours? It might be injustice. It might be suffering of different kinds. It might be something to do with the church. It might be something to do with work. I, I, I don't know what your thing is but you've got something that you've got to grow in discontent about. So God, he, he creates this, he, he allows us to become discontent. And the reason he does so, the purpose of him doing so, is to move us to action. The first of which, the most important action we can do, is prayer. Now, too often we think of prayer as a passive act, as a passive thing. You know, if, if, you're, if you're praying, you're not acting, right? And that, that's a complete misunderstanding of what prayer is because prayer is action. And it's the most important action that we can take. I want you to hear me say that today. I, I'm convinced that a great portion of our pain and suffering that we experience in this life is due to our own lack of prayer. It's just like God would intervene. He would help out if we would just go to him with stuff. Our tendency, though, is to, to not go to God. When God gives us a type of prophetic insight, let's say it's about a person. This, is hap- this used to happen, used to, it still is, with people that I work with. Um, 
and uh, just in general, and not people I work with, people in my family, just every, you get insights about people, all right? And uh, you notice something about them that just kind of irks you. Um, And it's something maybe that you notice that other people don't or that that person doesn't. It's insight, right? Why do you think God gave you that insight? Well, you know, it's for me to complain about it and vent and to judge them and whatever. No, God gave you that insight to pray, to be the person who carries the burden of interceding on their behalf and bringing God into the situation. That's just one example, but whatever he makes you discontent about, it's not just so that you can like, you know, roll around and wonder what to do. It's so that you can go to God and ask for his help so that you can become desperate and and not take things into your own hands. But seek out God. So for me, there's this, uh, you know, I talked about my, my discontent with apathy in the church, and there's this conversation, at, not just at Schweitzer, in the church as a whole, um, larger church, in, at least in our country, and it's this conversation about a great awakening that's coming. We want to come. It's a conversation about a revival. And we're due. We're long overdue as far as history is concerned. It, it is about time in this side of the world for the church to be revived, all right? And so there's this conversation that's growing and this longing that's, that's starting to become deeper, and, and, and it's a really cool thing. Um, I'm just convicted quite a bit. It's like every week, Bob and I, we, uh, we meet on Wednesdays, and we talk about this, this revival and this awakening we want to happen. And I think back to my week, and I only prayed about it like once or twice. And I just, you know, I just hear God saying, how, how badly do you really want this? Notice that Habakkuk, he says, he says, how long, O Lord, must I cry for help? How long? Try this out for a second. Think about something that you want to happen. And then then cry out to God, um, trying to be sincere, and say, how long, O Lord, must I call for your help? In my case, and I'm guessing in some of yours too, that his response would probably be like, how about just once? Or twice, I don't know. Maybe, maybe more than just once every so often. <laughs> how badly do you really want this? How often we pray, how intensely we pray, how badly is often how God measures, I think, how badly we really want something. How desperately we understand our need is for him. And until we get to that point, I don't think we can expect for God to intervene and for our hearts to be filled with his joy. So, when we do that, when we pray, once we get to the point that we can say, how long, O Lord, to the point that Habakkuk was at, to the point that the Israelites were at when they were slaves in Egypt for 430 years, all right? They finally got to a point where they said, we can't take it anymore, God, how long? And God will intervene. He will answer. He will. That is a fact if you take that to God. And when he does respond, one of two things will happen. Either A, you won't like what he has to say. Or B, you will. And, and if you do, end of story. Great. You know, that's, prayer was answered. But today we're going to assume that you didn't, okay? Because for Habakkuk, he didn't like it. And so listen to how God responded. 
verse 5. It says, The Lord replied, Look around at the nations. Look and be amazed. For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. I'm raising up the Babylonians, a cruel and violent people. They will march across the world and conquer other lands. In other words, what God says to Habakkuk is, okay, you want me to do something about this injustice in Judah? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the, the meanest, baddest, angriest, most cruel and violent people that I can find in the whole land, and I'm going to raise them up, I'm going to make them strong, and I'm going to use them to punish Judah. What? And that's Habakkuk's response. He's like, are you kidding me? That's how you're going to work? He says, oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you don't plan to wipe us out. Surely. Oh, Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? Habakkuk is not content with God's response. He's not okay with it. He's saying, God, this doesn't seem like you. This doesn't seem like the God I know. I don't quite get why you would work in this way. And, and you know what? God doesn't condemn him for this type of response. I, I want to share a story with you. A few weeks ago, um, I was at licensing school. Uh, you know, they talked about I, was, uh, I just became licensed to be a pastor. And so I was there for a week in a dorm room with four other guys, um, And the first night we were there, these are all soon to be pastors, uh, we spent like three hours in a conversation, theological debate, if you will, um, between us. And it was, it was a healthy conversation, but basically there was one guy in particular who was, who was kind of questioning, uh, having a difficult time with the existence of hell. It's a traditional Christian doctrine, and it's, it is a difficult subject when you consider uh, God's love and his power and his desire to save all people, and yet there's still the existence of hell, and so this can ruffle some feathers. And so, so anyway, uh, soon, four soon-to-be pastors talking about this issue, um, none of whom really have answers, by the way. Keep that in mind. Pastors don't have all the answers, and we're questioning and we're striving to know God more, and we're challenging each other, and we're debating, and we're um, looking to scriptures. And At the end of it, uh, the guy who was having the hardest time, he, he said to me, he said, Jake, I cannot tell you how much I appreciated the opportunity to have this conversation. He said, I've, I've had it with others in the past. He went to a Christian college and whatever, and he goes, I have lost friends over this very conversation because they considered me less of a Christian for even asking. And that's real. And I'm guessing there's been some of you in the room that have asked those questions and had the same response or you've avoided asking those questions because you feared that response. He was like, I, he was just saying, I'm so grateful that we could just, in love, just seek to understand things better together. And, and folks, there are places in the world and the church and whatever where it's not safe to challenge you know, the, the status quo. It's not safe to, to ask questions about God that contradict people's you know, traditional beliefs. And it's, but at Schweitzer, this is a place where you can ask those things. I really believe that. And I hope that each one of us is a person that can create that type of space. 
Because without it, what happens is that our, our joy um, becomes shallow, does it not? Our joy becomes shallow if we just avoid these questions and pretend like everything is okay rather than, rather than working through it. And our, our theology just becomes poor, honestly. This is one reason why I love Alpha. A quick plug for Alpha is it starts at the end of August um, and uh, it's a 12-week series where that's what they do. They create a space to have these types of conversations. And if you need that, go to Alpha. So if we ever want to experience authentic joy in God, we need to be able to express when we're upset with God. We need to be able to express when we're angry with God. You see, here's the tendency is that when we have these questions, when we, when we are angry with God, we tend to avoid him. And I've seen this happen so many times with people I know is that uh, they get angry at God for something or they, or they, they question something about the faith and they just, they, they don't take it to God. They don't even give God a chance to give a rebuttal. It's just peace, I'm out. You gotta take it to God more than anything. Not just to people, not just to each other, but to God. Give God a chance to speak into the situation. And again, he will respond. Now the second time around, after Habakkuk expresses his dissatisfaction with God, he says this, I will climb up to my watchtower and stand at my guard post. There I will wait to see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. I think this is significant because the reality is that uh, oftentimes God doesn't answer immediately. Is that we do have to wait. I'm telling you that God will respond eventually. That is, that's true. But eventually is not immediately and I, I don't think we like to wait. I don't like to wait either, but you gotta, and it's worth it. The answers that we're seeking, the joy that we're seeking, the God that we're seeking will be given in time if we wait. So how do we wait? Waiting sounds passive. It sounds like I'm not doing anything. I'm just waiting, you know? How do we wait actively? I got a few suggestions, all right? Um, these aren't all of them, but one is silence. 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 Turn off your phones. Turn off the TV. Get off of social media. Get out of town. Go to a cabin. Shut things down. Shut things off. Shut the door. Close it down. All right, get silent for real for probably the first time in a long time. Get really quiet and just listen. This doesn't have to be an incredible act of, of God or a week-long journey to, you know, the promised land or whatever. This can be uh, 10 minutes in the morning before you go to work. But you need it. We all need it. And especially in our culture, I'll throw that out there. Uh, second, here's my second and final suggestion here, fasting. Understand that fasting uh, in our culture is like, I don't know if taboo is the right word, but it's almost like if you fast, you're just this like holiest person in the world if you give up food for 24 hours or 48 hours. Folks, we don't need food 
to live for, for weeks, literally weeks. And, and fasting has been not just a Christian discipline, but a religious discipline for millennia, thousands of years. And for some reason, in the, in the relatively recent past, I'm talking like maybe century, out of, it has died. It is no longer a, a regular practice, and we suffer because of it. I'm telling you this, as someone who practices this, this discipline regularly, it's had more impact on my faith in the last year than any other discipline that I've had. If you want to hear God, if you want to know what God has to say, get close to him, fast. I'm, I'm for real. And it's biblical. It's not, it's not that crazy. So when you do, as I said, God will respond. Um, and again, when he responds, one of two things will happen. You'll either like it, end of story, or you won't. And if you don't, if you don't like it, then you repeat the cycle. You express your dissatisfaction in God. You seek greater joy. You ask him questions. You challenge. You wait for his response. And you repeat that cycle until you get what you need to hear, what you really need to hear, okay? But he will respond, and eventually, you'll receive what you need. So let's read how God responded to Habakkuk the second and last time. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end, and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves, and their lives are crooked. But the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. God goes on to describe in a full chapter how everything that Habakkuk desires, everything that he needs, the justice, righteousness, holiness, uh, no pain and suffering, etc., it will be fulfilled. It will come. It will not be delayed. It'll come, just not yet. I want, to, I, want to hear, I want you to hear God saying this to you this morning and that whatever it is that you have a growing discontent about, whatever it is that you're seeking answers from God about, whatever it is that you need and lack, God will give to you in time, just not yet. And we're left in this place with Habakkuk, this, this just weird uh, reality of life that, that God's promises are real, and he's made that pretty clear, and that if he's given us his son, won't he also give us all things? You know? <laughs> God has made it as clear as day that we can trust in his eternal promises of, of freedom from pain and suffering completely and perfect joy, but... As long as we're here on this earth and living and breathing and walking and talking, we will suffer. You can't escape it. But it's by suffering with God. It's by sharing in his pain only that we can share in his joy. You can't skip one and have the other. That's why it's, uh, it's a burden to be a Christian and to live for God on this earth. It's also an incredible gift. If the music team would come up, I'm going to share one last story. Uh, and uh, So when I was growing up, I was a coin collector. 
All right, it's pretty, I was a pretty cool kid. And uh, so I had, I mean, like a lot of coins, right? And one of the things, and you, remember, you might remember in 1999, they started putting out, pushing out five state quarters every year, right? 99 to 2008, 10 years and five state quarters a year, all 50 states by the end of it. And uh, I not only, some of you maybe collected those, all right? Not only did I collect them as they came, I, I wanted them in mint condition. All right, and so every, every year, <laughs> just laughing, every year at my birthday, I'd ask for that year's uh, set in mint condition, and I never got it. And every Christmas, I'd ask for that year's set in mint condition, I never got it. And I'd ask for the same thing next year, and I never got it, and again and again, I mean, this went on for like years, I'm talking, which is really weird because I was a spoiled kid. I got everything I asked for. I'm serious. This is the only thing in my life I didn't get. It didn't make sense to me. It's like, why do I, I just, I want coins. Can I just, and uh, when I turned 21, it was 2012, my grandpa, my grandpa, he, uh, he had been saving them up year by year. And when I thought I was just not getting heard, he was planning on giving those to me, and he was waiting. He was preparing. He held on to those for like close to 10 years before he gave them to me. And by that point, I didn't even care about coins anymore. I, did, I was 21. But uh, the joy that it gave me to know that he had been planning and preparing, and had I just known that throughout the years, you know? Here's the reality is that God is preparing for you something that you can't even imagine. Everything that you want and everything that you need is coming. You need to know that it's coming. And that inheritance and that glory that awaits you, it's, it's beyond all comparison. Christ himself, God has, himself, is waiting on the other side for you, and he's here with you in the meantime, and in that, we can rejoice. Amen.